Welcome to Uvalde Reports. Today we'll be discussing a different sort of topic. As the nation prepares for the upcoming 2016 presidential election, we have to ask ourselves, what makes for a good public speaker? Since the advent of the television era, presidential candidates are measured by how effective they are as orators. Unfortunately, since World War II, only three presidents are considered great communicators, and they are Presidents John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. But what made them so effective over other presidents? What makes a great public speaker? Today's podcast will focus on this topic and will analyze what makes for a great public speaker, especially for those candidates seeking the presidential um, nomination for 2016. Now, today's guest will be someone who has spent his entire life mentoring and coaching elected officials, corporate executives, and countless others on the effective method of reaching and moving your audience. On this podcast, we will be speaking with Joe Yazbek, founder and president of Prestige Leadership Advisors, an international leadership coach and speaker and best-selling author of No Fear Speaking. Now, let's welcome Joe Yazbek. How's it going, Joe? Hi, John. I'm glad to be on your show. It's a pleasure to have you be on, your sh- on, on the show, especially regarding what's going on as we gear up for the next presidential election. So I'm glad to have you. Well, thank you. You think the world is ready for another election? I don't know about that. I mean, I think people are getting tired. I know you're supposed to be asking me the questions. (laughs) Hey, but it's always start to have stuff come back. First of all, now you have advised national and regional candidates on how to communicate effectively on their audience. How have you done that? Well, I, I can tell you I've done that starting out with a lot of due diligence. Okay, I I am very selective and picky about who I work with with regard to the uh, regional and national candidates. I've worked um, with uh, ensuring that I believe in the messages and their philosophies and so forth. And it makes no difference whether they're Democrat or Republican. I like working with good people. I like working with intelligent people that have a heart and soul. And I like working with people who are public servants that know that their purpose in <clears throat> is serving the public, not not in some kind of political power struggles. And so I stay away from those, and I find it much easier to coach those candidates that have that kind of authentic or genuine and natural sense of themselves and why they're in the world of public service to begin with, they're much easier to coach. And so their communication is a lot more natural, a lot more expressive. Now, is there a certain criteria that you look for in a candidate or someone that you coach? Oh, yeah. First, it's got to start off with ethics. Number one, I I don't take on any client, no matter what industry. And I've worked in many, many industries unless there is a certain standard of ethics standard of responsibility or accountability. I certainly don't want to fortify an individual who is out there causing damage. So that's that's the first thing I look for. Secondly is their competency and do they have the know-how to do their jobs. The next thing for me is why I help them become powerful communicators. 
if they're competent and ethical, why it's certainly much, much more practical, if not easier, and a simpler approach, what I call, you know, we, we, we don't really have a path of resistance. It's the path of least resistance at that point where they really become successful. And I've worked in presidential campaigns to anything from our local. The idea here, of course, is to have a speaker really connect to an audience anyway, you've got to make sure they show up, that they have a heart and soul and not sitting there looking over their shoulder, thinking about every word they say, because they've been told to say it that way. And if they've been told to say it that way with so much spin, they're not going to connect anyone. Now, the, the, the question I brought up at the beginning, we've only had three presidents who are very effective communicators since World War II, and they were presidents John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. In your expert opinion, what made those three presidents just so dynamic when they came to communicating with an audience? Well, I don't want to leave out Theodore Roosevelt, but we don't have much footage of him. <laughs> Correct. We don't. From, a, from a history standpoint, Theodore Roosevelt, turn of the century, was incredibly impactful. A lot of great uh, sayings and um, inspirational messages came from him at a time period where it was needed. But, you know, those presidents you mentioned, Reagan, Kennedy, Clinton, they had a sense of identity about themselves. They were very likable. It was hard to disagree with them. Even if they said something you disagreed with, it was hard to disagree with them because they were likable. Uh, they were mannerly. They, they they expressed themselves with a lot of high interest, expressiveness. Uh, you know, they were confident. They were not stilted, uh, spun speakers. They were not uh, what I would call scripted speakers. Even though they were reading from a script, they didn't sound scripted. I think that really made the difference. And the, the more they spoke, the better they got. Now, but what made them so likable, though? I mean, I know that you said they weren't scripted, but they just, were they just had a way about themselves? They knew who they were and where they were going? Yeah, I think if you look at Reagan, he certainly had the experience being in front of a camera, in front of an audience for so many years. And... I think he he recognized that, you know, you cannot lie to the public. <clears throat> the public is not stupid. You know, and, and Reagan had a sense of, uh, I think, all-American cowboy, but likable, not harsh, not in your face. And he was a kind of a leader that liked to work both sides of the aisle. You know, him and Tip O'Neill were very, very good friends. And so he was known not to be an abrasive, divisive president. I think the same thing with Kennedy, although Kennedy created divisiveness. I think Kennedy himself had a had a, a new horizon, like there's a new sheriff in town, but not necessarily from an, an enforcement basis. But he didn't have many likable presidents before Kennedy. And Kennedy was a breath of fresh air, and I think he, he, he had a kind of a sexy – new uh, kind of romance-oriented sort of field, you know, the Camelot thing, he and his beautiful wife, all of that mixed. It was good branding. Clinton, 
Clinton was uh, a good old boy. He was uh, he could have been any race in the United States. Uh, I mean, the people called him the first black president, <laughs> you know, and he was just very open. He was uh, he he played his uh, saxophone. He got on the air. Um, he was able to be very Teflon, uh, you know, slick Willie is what they called him, you know, but uh, that was very uh, it was likable in, in a time period that, that people enjoyed that kind of thing where people didn't let things stick to them. And certainly Clinton did not let anything stick to him. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a lot to be said about those personalities, about the way they attract people. You know, and, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, I don't know uh, why it is that the, 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 the country elects a president. I think a president should be elected on qualifications. I'm not sure if that is the case anymore. But public speaking and public relations and how one expresses themselves and the personality and all the branding certainly have made a huge difference the last 50 or 60 years. But you made, a, you made a good point, Joe, with regard to Ronald Reagan. Now, everybody attributes his communicating ability because he was an actor. And I think what people fail to realize is he also honed his skills when he was speaking for General Electric. And in the late 1950s, he used to travel around the country giving all these speeches. How important is practice in public speaking? It's everything. It's everything. And uh, when I take clients through my coaching training center and I and these are these are leaders, these are C-level execs up. Uh, these are people that that need to learn how to connect, not just in the boardroom. And so there are there are really traits and characteristics of of a great speaker. And uh, I think it's it's very important to be able to to understand what it takes in order to to really affect change on a group or if you're standing in front of a large audience and better yet on camera that you come across with a certain amount of naturalness and some heart and soul and that you really truly connect with some kind of idea that make people feel something you know whether you're uplifting them or whether you're getting them to have a wake-up call Whatever it might be, it's got to be something desirable that makes good positive change happen. I think that's what Reagan was was noted for in a lot of ways, and it was easy for him because he did quite a bit of it in practice. This is what I do. I do a lot of drilling in my training center, and I drill, drill, drill. It's repetition until they get it and it becomes so effortless they don't have to think about it. And, of course, the more you stand up in front of an audience and – the more chances and opportunities you have to present, the easier it gets. Now, we're seeing candidates, I mean, more and more candidates are coming out now to run for the Republican or Democratic um, nomination for president. And we're seeing them communicate via the stump speech and also in front of a professional um, group setting. Is there a difference when you give a stump speech to a professional setting? Well, yes, um, Every audience is different. Every presentation uh, must have taken into account what's the true purpose of that presentation and what are you getting out of that? What is the final end result of that presentation? And those three things, which I mentioned in my book, 
the very first chapter of my book, Audience, Purpose, Product, or the APP, it, it's got to be taken into consideration before you you even uh, stand up, whether it's a, a stump speech or whether it's a you know a keynote or or whether you're you're doing a a, a roast. And you've seen the president, one president after another, do a roast every so often. You know, it's it's uh, there is a difference between um, a campaign speech and any other kind of speech, which could be, you know, an inspirational keynote to an awards speech to a call to action, a fundraising campaign speeches are. Really, I think, the, much like the way a singer needs to select a song. It could be the absolute wrong song for that singer. You see? You're not bringing about the best of that singer. So I say, let's really select a subject matter that really is, uh, you know, conducive or natural to that speaker, given the audience they're speaking to. You know, it has to be something that that speaker needs to embrace, uh, feel feel confident about. And then, of course, uh, you've got to be able to get that point across in 10 minutes. If you're out there for 10 minutes, it's about all you really want to be out there for in a stump speech is 10 minutes. I don't think I think the longer you're out there, the uh, higher the chances are getting into trouble and sticking your foot in your mouth. You want to be able to hit a few very impact points and then strike a nerve with a story, give a good example, and then, of course, give your audience who are collecting there to get a sense of who you are, what you stand for as a person. And uh, I think in that way you're going to collect a bigger audience in subsequent speeches. And that's is that a way for you to effectively move an audience that you're not speaking for? It's just like if you go back to – was it Lincoln's, uh, President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address? Nobody remembers the guy who spoke for two hours, even though he was the most effective orator of his day. And here Lincoln spoke for, what, 10 minutes? And everybody remembers his speech. So is that an effective way to move your audience? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's communicating a truth that people can believe in and embrace. There's a lot of lies going on. They don't last long. And... People don't want to be lied to, and people now are getting a sense of what a lie is and how you, what your garden varieties of lies are, your exaggerations, your promises, all of those things. You know, particularly in debates, which I, I think are becoming really over-mediacized now. There's just too many of them. But I think the impact there has to be emotional, has to be truthful, number one, and it has to have purpose behind it that people can connect with and go, man, this person really understands the needs of his constituents or her constituents. I'm going to listen to this person. You see? And it's not enough just to have credibility the way Lincoln had. Lincoln had credibility. And everyone wanted to know what he had to say. But, you know, when you stand up there, you're either a, a, a talking head, much like a, a, a Muzak in an elevator, which falls on deaf ears, or you're alive. 
And as a speaker in the political arena, you've got to be very alive and stop chattering like a machine and just look at people in the eye, even though you're on camera, and give a damn about the listener. Care about them. Show you care. Show you're sincere. You know, you're not just confident. You're not marketing hype. Anybody can do marketing hype. You, I call them infomercial campaigners. You know, you're waiting for them to say, but wait, there's more. You know, those are the worst campaigners. Now, I'd much rather have somebody like perhaps a Harry Truman, who wasn't a very good campaigner, let's say, but he certainly had a sense of grassroots, uh, you know, salt of the earth kind of guy about him, you know. And uh, people like that kind of thing. They like that kind of simplicity. Now, but you mentioned like in your original art, uh, point on this, you mentioned debates. And I do agree with you, Joe, that I think the, the debates have gotten so media focused and they've gotten away from connecting with the voters. But how should a candidate prepare and conduct themselves in the debate, especially with I know the Republicans are going to have their first debate starting in August and I'm sure the Democrats will have theirs. But how should a, um, a candidate prepare and conduct themselves in the debate? You always have to be ready to prove your point, number one. The point you're making must have some credibility support sources to it. You can even cite where those sources came from so that your point is more valid and believable. Now, here's the key thing. You also want to disprove lies. Anything that's being said about you in a debate needs to be disproven with documentation. That needs to happen anyway. It's just a sign of very effective public relations. You see, documents to disprove the accuser. And the accuser will look like they've got egg on their face when you've got documentable evidence that you've just disproven the lie they gave. Now, and now the lie could be either about you or, or about anything. Now, is there a way to do disprove the lie or disprove the um, argument against you without doing it in a way that's going to alienate the audience or the the or the, uh, the voters? No, wait a minute here. I got to tell you, the audience will never be alienated if you tell them the truth. But you've got to okay. prove it. You're never alienating an audience with truth, right? You can alienate an audience with lies because you'll end up. They might accept it at first, but they'll see that you're you're prefabricating and you're altering the truth. But you could be prepared right there on the spot by knowing the documentation. Even if you did not have the physical evidence in your hand, you can cite the actual evidence. Give a, a specific uh, uh, journal or give a specific document and give the date of it and who authored it. It, it, it actually will dissolve the attack right there. So that would give you instant credibility by you, you've you reported your sources. You, this is where you can find it, and it gives the audience a chance. Oh, I'm going to go look at that, and then they can find out for themselves. That's right. You even have now fact checkers, right? Fact checkers. Correct. Sometimes fact checkers are wrong, okay? They're not really getting – they're not getting reliable sources of their facts, but – I think you always will win on the side of disproving lies and proving your own point. That's why you should never lie in public relations. No, you're, you're correct on that. And I think once you do lie, 
people don't trust you again, even if you say the truth. That's true. So you, and that's a great point that you brought up. But now that you're in the debate, obviously you're going to be, typically you're going to be on camera. Is there a way to prepare yourself for camera? Because you remember the famous debate between Nixon and Kennedy. Well, Nixon just didn't look kind of shifty where Kennedy was this energetic individual. Well, that's a good example. My first point is appearance. Because if you remember those debates, uh, Kennedy had great contrast with his darker jacket than, than Nixon did, who kind of blended and faded into the background. And uh, uh, appearance is everything. Uh, you have to be very camera friendly. You have to be open to the camera, realize that that camera is an individual. Uh, so when I say on, you, you know, on, on television or, or on camera, I think from a deba debate standpoint, you're comfortable, you're confident, you're caring, you're an expert, you're credible. In other words, you have credibility uh, you have sincerity. Nothing makes you defensive. Nothing. I mean, the the almighty uh, Reagan quote, oh, there you go again, Walter. I mean, that was a great response to Walter Mondale trying to get something to stick to Reagan. And Reagan just brushed it off like, I'm too comfortable for you, Walter. There's nothing you could do to throw me off my position. And that's really what that's all about. An audience, the cameras, it doesn't matter how lethal the question is. You're comfortable. You're cool. Isn't that what an audience or a voter wants to see in an executive leader? You cannot be rattled. That's the well, first the, thing. Well, what about like humor? Because I know in that same debate that you're talking about with uh, Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan, Reagan used humor when he said, I'm not going to exploit my challengers youth and inexperience and even walter mondale just broke into laughter on that one as well how does humor bring into this well yeah i'm reminded of lloyd benson's line you know i've met john kennedy and you are no john kennedy <laughs> <laughs> i remember dan quayle on that one dan too. quayle what, what was dan quayle going to do there he sat there with his tail between his legs you know these are these are not rehearsed and that's another thing. You've got to be so present in your conversations. You've got to be right there forgetting about it. Like you've got this guy in your office and you're going to take him to town, you know, and, and you're sitting there, you're sitting there and you're, you're having a back and forth and it becomes a, uh, a chess match. Seriously. And you got to forget about the idea that millions of people are watching, man, you're in a conversation and you're in it for the rest of your life here. That's either going to happen or it doesn't. But you've got to be truthful. But at the beginning of this, when you said preparation and knowing yourself, how many, um, how do you use like humor? But if you're not humorous or you're not funny or you're really not comfortable in that, how do you use that to your advantage? Or well, you know, quite honestly, there's a uh, there's a definition of humor. People think that. You have to tell a joke or you've got to be really funny and people have to laugh from the gut. That's really not it. It's it's you can amuse people. It's amusement. In fact, I think of humor as your light. You're lightening things up. Uh, you could tell a story and you could tell that story and 
it becomes a very lighthearted, amusing story. You can get it across in 20 or 30 seconds, and it really sheds light on on the message by by giving it what I call yeast. You know how yeast lightens Correct. everything up. Put some yeast into it. Now, do, do, do these same principles work in – I know it's one thing on television, but what about when you're speaking on radio or even doing a podcast? Do the same principles apply? Absolutely. And you've got to even more so put your, uh, your audience there. Put them in front of you. You want to have the viewpoint of your listenership always. Like right now, for example, there's no live audience, but I'm putting one there, and so are you. And it's as though they're sitting right in front of me. And I've got them there. And that's a very imaginative thing to do, but that brings a conversation to life rather than have it so stilted. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, because you want to make sure you can connect and people want to feel comfortable. So I, I'm guessing it's the same thing in television as with radio. Well, you know, here's another example of a president during World War II who put his audience to rest at a time of very high turmoil, and that was Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his famous fireside chats. And people would peel their ears to the radio, and he calmed them down, and he made them feel as though that he was talking just to them. It wasn't like he was giving this big, big speech to this big crowd. It was as though he's having a, a natural conversation with, with his audience. And that was very famous, and... Uh, because of the fact that he created that much intimacy on radio. Yeah, he was very effective with those fireside chats and connecting with the audience. But now that we spoke on the audience or the public, how should a, ca a candidate deal with the media? Because we've seen political um, candidates <clears throat> running for president on both the Democrat and Republican side have difficulties dealing with the media? How well, should a candidate deal with the media? Well, honestly, the media has a role. Uh, I like most media. I think they are, some are disingenuous. Some are very uh, supportive of getting the facts and all of that and in an accurate way. Uh, but uh, honestly, when you have cameras in front of you or microphones and you have to have prepared statements in a way, but you've got to prepare them so that they don't sound prepared, you know, and you might be asked a question and it may not be a question you want to answer. And so uh, you can always answer the question, but answer in a way that really truly embraces your idealism because you're not interested in opening the door to someone uh, who's trying to uh, trap you into something where you cannot defend yourself. So you've only got a certain amount of time to truly give no credence at all to a negative when you're in front of the media. I wouldn't even put attention on a, on a negative. I would embrace the positive of what you're putting out there regardless of the negative question. That's probably what every candidate, public servant, political candidate, or anyone who has a camera in front of them really needs to know is, I tell them, get Teflon, man. Get as Teflon as you can. but you want to be able to tell them the truth and realize the media's job is to sometimes sensationalize and get lots of attention by, uh, you know, trying to open up a wound that may not even be there. No, that's a good point. I mean, because the media does get hostile to some of the candidates, no matter what party you belong to. But is there a better way to handle 
even the most hostile media questioning? And I have a philosophy, John, and uh, you know, uh, you're you're a 30 year Marine. I, I I think that's tremendous experience and skill and accomplishment. Uh, and I do a lot of work with vets, and a lot of tr- uh, discipline goes into how to defend oneself. And like the martial arts, for example, the martial arts and that kind of and that philosophy that is embedded in the martial arts is all about how do you take emotion coming at you and not resist it, but control it by moving it in the direction that it's going. So you'll look an awful lot better standing up in front of a podium or a platform or on camera, not being defensive, not resisting. If you've got hostility, you can even laugh it off. And then talk about your own points you want to talk about. You know, I mean, you're not going to introvert. You're not going to get defensive. You're not going to get mad. You're not going to look like someone just made you look like you've got egg on face. You take it, you acknowledge it, and then you express the points you want to make in a positive way. You basically ignore the negative. Okay? Because you're not up there to put attention on negative. I'll give you one bad example. I hate to use it, but I can give it to you. When Governor Rick Scott of Florida was involved in his inaugural address, some heckler interrupted him, and he allowed the heckler to interrupt him. That was the worst thing he could have possibly done. He gave attention to a heckler, when all he should have done was continue on expressing the positive, and that guy would have realized that he could not create an effect on the governor. I remember that. It, it did make him look very ineffective and it diluted his message that he was trying to accomplish because everybody Correct. remembered the heckler, not what Pre- uh, excuse me, Governor Scott has stated. That's how you handle the media. <laughs> now, I mean, yep. How would you, I mean, as we look at the candidates, I mean, it doesn't matter Democratic or Republican, how would you get them to do a better job with the media because I listened to some of the candidates on both sides and it seems like they're always defensive and they're always kind of angry when they deal with the media. Well, honestly, if that's the case, they're not being coached properly. Uh, my answer to your question, John, would be send them to me. And if they pass my screening and my due diligence and my vetting, why well, I could do some wonders with them because every one of them needs to be coached. And coaching is essential. It's practice. You know, I coach a lot of people in the entertainment industry, athletics and professional sports, and people in business. And every one of them need X's and O's. They need to get practice, 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 skill building. And when you do that, you can be able to to to, to take any stage, whether it's live or on camera, and you know exactly what to do and how to react, how to respond. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into my last question is how can somebody find out about No Fear Speaking and how can they find out about your company, Prestige Leadership Advisors? Well, No Fear Speaking is now a best-selling book and all the materials are available on nofearspeaking.com, hardcover, paperback, the audio book program now. Uh, There's a quick reference guide to all the charts and tables and illustrations of the book and what will be coming out shortly is a full video course training program that they can download on the website. So that's nofearspeaking.com. And for leadership training and and many of the workshops that I do for corporate and speaking engagements, they can go to prestigeleader.com. 
so you've got prestigeleader.com, you've got nofearspeaking.com for the No Fear Speaking system. And I know that the the book that you put out, No Fear Speaking, I've read that cover to cover, and I incorporated a lot of that into my presentations, and it's f- phenomenal. And I thought I was a pretty good public speaker until I went through that uh, went through that book, and I learned a lot of that, and just the help that you provided in my public speaking, and especially putting my book together, The New Business Brigade. And this can be found on Amazon and any of the major booksellers, including uh, Barnes & Noble. And the premise of the New Business Brigade is why businesses should hire veterans and the untapped resource they represent. But I would like to thank Joe for being on um, Ubaldi Reports. And my listeners can find that on iTunes and Stitcher. And sign up. It's for free. Leave a comment to see what you thought about this and what other shows you would like to see. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening to Ubaldi Reports. And keep listening, and you'll get more of these valuable insights into what's going on around the country and how it affects us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, Joe, and thank you again for being on the show. And I I tell my listeners, keep listening to Ubaldi Reports. Have a great day. 